Hello, welcome to Bluegrass Stories. I'm Howard Parker. In 1998, Missy Raines became only the second woman to win a prestigious IBMA Instrumentalist of the Year Award. In this insightful conversation with Katie Daly, Missy discusses her lengthy award-winning career that started immediately upon her high school graduation. Many awards later, Missy talks about her role as a musician, band leader, wife, sister, and mentor to many. It's an emotional journey that leads to Royal Traveler, Missy's latest project. Let's join Katie Daly and Missy Raines in conversation. Well, Missy, I think the first time I ever saw you was where the whole bluegrass world first saw you, was as a little kid stomping in your rubber boots in a big mud puddle. Uh, and it's been, you know, captured on Bluegrass Country Soul and a video that's available. And, uh, and I understand Akira, uh, who was in it with Bluegrass 45, and you are uh, now being interviewed by the producer uh, to sort of remember, because it was... 50 years ago, or about? 48. 48, about 48 years ago. Mm -hmm. So we're glad that you're in the Washington area to be interviewed, and we're glad to have you here with us. Um, Thank you. Do you, re you remember anything about the festival? Your parents took you to that, and they're featured in some of the front rows. Yes, oh, I remember so much about that festival in particular. Um, uh, because we were all aware that this film crew was there and it was sort of the buzz of the festival. Um, and and th this was before I was even playing bass. I was, I was only nine. I was uh, maybe playing guitar and p uh, piano at that point, um, but not um, hadn't even thought about the bass yet. But I had been going to festivals. I mean, this wasn't my first festival. This was, uh, I'd been going to festivals my whole life I, I don't even remember what the first one was but so we were we were not new to the festival scene at Camp Springs that year but we were so excited that that uh, this film crew had come and it, it felt to us like the rest of the world is going to finally know what how great this is you know they're going to come in and 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 expose us to the whole rest of the world so they could see what what beautiful things happen at mm -hmm. these festivals um, but uh, your parents, your father played bass? He hadn't bought the bass yet either. So um, my, my folks were just, they started, they were going to see live music before I was born. So that was something that they did for fun. In fact, they were going to see country music at the, in, before I was born, like in the late 50s. And um, they started, um, I guess, uh, I was the youngest of four children, so... Uh, there had been a little bit of break between my older brother and me, and I think they had reached a point where they had some time and some money to go here to do recreational things. So they started going to hear Farron Young and, and um, folks like that. My mom was a big Farron Young fan, I remember that. And at one of those country day shows uh, that they were at, the country gentlemen were put in between Ray Price and Farron Young or something like that. And, and when my mom heard the country gentleman, that was it. That changed everything. She decided, I want to go hear that kind of music from mm -hmm. now on. So then... She, was it called Bluegrass then? I don't... I mean, I think I think somewhat. Yeah, I think that, um, that she definitely knew it, it wasn't called country. So she was sort of following... She started following this thing that they were calling Bluegrass, I guess, at, even even then... Um, and so she would 
she, she started seeking out shows that had bands um, that were listed along with the Country Gentleman, and that got them to festivals. And th this was all in the, the tri-state area, you know, uh, Maryland, Northern Virginia, D.C., Southern Pennsylvania, um, close to where I grew up and um, in West Virginia. And um, so... So my so at the time when we went to Camp Springs, this the festival that we're speaking of, what the documentary is made from, um, we were there, um, and my parents always, uh, it was a huge deal for them to get front row seats. It was a huge deal for my mother to get the first get, and so every the first morning of the festival we'd arrive, and I just remember hearing my mother just start going on, Bob, did you get the chairs down there, Bob? Did you get? Have you? But did you take the chairs down, Bob? And so <laughs> my dad's like, "Yes, dear." And so he's like bringing the chairs down to the front row. And you know, in those days, you just sort of put your chairs, you staked out your claim, and you left them there the entire weekend. Mm -hmm. And so um, he must have been a little late because I think in this in in the documentary. Um, in this film, they're about two rows back, oh. which probably probably upset my mother a lot. <laughs> well, it's nice though that uh, both of your parents have passed, and when you can pull that video out, you can see your parents. I watch it often so that I can look at them in city, being in their totally in their habitat, you know, their native habitat, because that mm -hmm. was when they were the happiest. Is when they were at festivals, enjoying themselves, sitting in lawn chairs listening to music and then a tragedy uh, uh, hit your mom when uh, her sister-in-law came to visit not really to visit she came with a no, message no, no, and no, the no. message was you can tell the story I will never forget so um, uh, my, my aunt lived about an hour away from us and so we didn't see them just at the drop of hat and all of a sudden carload of my aunt and cousins come in and I was delighted got to you know went straight outside to play with my cousins meanwhile um my, my mom and aunt go and sort of sequester themselves in the living room and at one point my cousins and I sort of come upstairs and open the door and and I look into the living room and I see my mom and my aunt like sobbing the stereos going country gentleman music is playing and my parents I mean my mom and my aunt are just crying and talking and and I looked at my cousin and I said is somebody died like I didn't know and she said you haven't heard and I said no what and she said John Duffy has left the country gentleman <laughs> and and so I looked back at the scene of my parent of my mom and um and my aunt and they just were like truly inconsolable they were just and and they were playing records and that whole afternoon that's all they did was they I think they brought food in and the kids were <laughs> like left to pizza or something and they just that's how she spent the afternoon that's how I learned that he left the band well they, so they grieved the whole afternoon and, oh yeah and, um, and my mother really never got over it until the seldom scene came along oh right then, uh, he was he was back on the music scene <laughs> so when uh, when did you start learning to play and early right yeah I mean even at that point I was I started playing like organ I had a little play organ in in the kit in the dining room and I played that and I played piano and but then I switched to guitar early on because my you know I wanted to be like Mac Wiseman or I wanted to be like Lester Flatt those were my earliest 
things of of uh, images in my brain because I I heard that stuff on the stereo, I saw them live and as a kid and um, I I didn't see a whole lot of like strong women singers so I just zeroed in on um, uh, those guys and sort of wanted to be that but I hadn't started to play bass yet. And it wasn't until a couple of years later, when I was probably about 10 or 11 years old, about maybe 11, and my dad brought the, bought a bass for himself. Mm -hmm. And he apparently made this decision, like, to play and join in with the jams. Because at that point, you know, they were going to friends' house, neighbors' houses, jam sessions to be around people who were already playing. And then I would join in on guitar and stuff. So she, he, he brought this bass home, but apparently he also did not... Con talk about this to my mom because I remember him saying um, he never called my mom by her first name ever in my whole life he said he called her honey and he said honey come here and she came to the top of the steps and he's at the bottom and I was upstairs with her and he had the bass in his hand and he, he's like look what I did and uh, you know look look at this and she said what have you done <laughs> And she put her hands on her hips, like, what have you done, kind of. And um, and I'm looking back and forth to them thinking, what's going to happen now? But then I could see my mom was smiling behind those words. Like, she was completely, like, it was one of those things that I don't think he had talked to her about it, but she was totally on board. Well, uh, do you play that bass now? or Yeah, yeah. So really? That's, that's the bass I have. He ended up buying a really great bass. Of course, he had... I'm sure no idea what he was getting. He just it, he bought it for ninety dollars. It's an old K. It's one of the first Ks that they made, and it, so it was a really nice instrument. And um, he bought it, and so he he played it for a while. I have one very very precious photo of him playing. Um, I actually have I have I have another one, but that was kind of a staged one we did later. But this one was one where he was I was I he was actually jamming as part of a session and. And then it was in the house, and I was a kid, and you just pick stuff up, you know. So I, there was no uh, uh, pre-planning about it, no pre, um, you know, meditation about this. It was just like it was in the house, and I started playing it, and I really liked it, and I actually just liked it more than I even liked guitar at the time. Well, where we see that bass has taken you makes your mother's question even more important. What have you done? And they probably had no idea what that bass, where it was going to take you and what you were going to do with that instrument he brought home. Yeah. Because you left home at what age? Well, I, I left it right after I graduated high school. When I was 18. Mm -hmm. and, um, but those, those, I don't know, six years before that, it changed their lives for sure because uh, they, once I started playing and I had this huge love for it and and people seemed to be really um, excited about me playing, and and um, anything. Anyway, one thing led to another, and they were just so excited for me that they just spent every waking moment and and money and and time to allow me to be in situations that were, you know, helpful to me, and, mm -hmm. and which meant they did. It was the equivalent, I guess, of like putting your kids in 
some sports and and spending your whole time just carry, carrying them back forth from from one sporting event to another except for me it was music events and and for and it was often quite a long distance that we travel you know a couple hours away every weekend but that was on top of my dad wor- working full time of course and my mom not driving my mom never drove so it was all up to my dad until i finally got my license and and i was given a lot of freedom and and when I think about it now, I was like, I could never do this with my kid. But my dad, after a while, like they trusted me so much, and they, I did a lot of stuff on my own that that I'm sure kids my age weren't doing. You know, being left to drive off and an hour or two away, you know, to go play a bar <laughs> <laughs> that I really wasn't old enough to be in. Right. So uh, when you did leave home uh did you have a plan or were you going to go someplace and find a job or did you have a job waiting for you somewhere or i um had a job offer the first job offer that that i that i took was um in cleveland ohio so i put all my stuff in in my little um dotson f10 and um and I, I drove to Cleveland, and I was going to join this band called, um, well, let's see, I'll have to think about that, the title of the band, I forget. But I remember the people very well, and and um, and, and I was going to join that band, and I did uh, play some, played out a few uh, months with them, but I ended up um, getting fired from that gig. <laughs> and then... Um, what was the problem? Well... <laughs> You know, the 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 truth is, um, for years and years, I didn't know what the problem was, um, but I assumed they had a good reason. So, um, I found out later. I asked them, um, and so the problem was around this time, or around sometime around when I was about seventeen or so, so a little bit before that. I had become friends with Tom Gray, and that's a whole other story how that happened. But Tom had become, you know, he was my mentor, my hero, and and he was so nice to me, and he always took time to talk to me. And he had told me that he was going to put my name in if he ever had to not make a, a gig with the seldom scene if he couldn't make a gig that he was going to suggest that they use me I could have died right then and you know just just knowing that that was even an option and so apparently I told everyone <laughs> I would have too <laughs> and so apparently what I did and I can't believe I did this is such a like a really like young stupid thing to do but apparently I told this band that yeah I'm here for any gig Unless <laughs> I get a call, and and this, and Tom has told me that I would be subbing for him if they all agree. So then, if that happens, I can't make whatever gig, and and that's so I was coming in it from this such a green place, you know that I that's what I said to them, and apparently that didn't go over so big <laughs> with them, right? And I'm sure they just thought it was just the most you know precocious thing ever and um so i was there for a little while but then they and that's apparently why i got fired well eventually (laughs) tom gray did have to go on vacation or something and you did get that call i did and i didn't i didn't by the time that that happened 
I was with a band A that completely supported what I was doing, but I was also had figured it out a little bit more that you didn't have to, like it wasn't an either or situation. You could make things work. You, you didn't so. have to sit by the phone <laughs> and call that your musical career, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I and it, it was just a few years later, but um, but after I left Cleveland, I went to Winston Salem, North Carolina, because I'd heard there was a gig there. I'd been offered a gig there to play with Cherokee Rose, which was an all girl band, mm-hmm. and. Uh, uh, fronted by uh, Louisa Branscombe, uh, Sally Wingate, um, uh, uh, and uh, Tyra Summers was in that band. Um, and um, so I, I went down there for a little while, um, but then I lost that gig too. But I lost that gig to Lynn Morris because um, Mindy, uh, who had been playing the bass, had switched to guitar for so that I came in um, and but then they found Lynn, and who wouldn't want Lynn on guitar and singing? So the bass player switched back to to bass, and so then I was out of a job again. You were free to play with a seldom seen again. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I although I probably told them the same thing because I hadn't learned this lesson yet, but it didn't bother them. And and so anyway, after that happened, um, I Bill Evans. Had been had been asking me to join his band Cloud Valley down in Charlottesville since I was probably about sixteen, and I said, "Well, I'm, I'm in high school, Bill, so I can't really do that, you know." But then uh, I thought, you know, that might be a really cool thing to do. So I I called Bill and said, "Is that is that gig still available?" And he said, "Yes." And so I said, "I'll be there tomorrow." So I left Winston. That. Did, next day and drove to Charlottesville and then that, and that's where I stayed and that that was that was the home for me that was the place I was had been looking for mm-hmm. and um I you know I obviously f- f- fell in with uh Steve and and Steve Smith and Bill Evans and Charlie Ranke at the time we were just like we hit it off immediately and it was just a really great time and a a great pe- growing period for, in my life plus I loved the town I loved being there and um I, it was just all all the good things about, and it was you know I was, gosh, probably not, only nineteen by that point. I'd done all that sort of traveling and moving from city to city in a pretty short amount of time. And so before we move on, let me go, reach back and say how well received was an all girl band at that time. Um, you know, I had nothing to do with any of the booking or promoting of of it. Um, and knew knew nothing about what was what they were facing or how how that was going from that side of it. It felt like we were we were um, accepted just fine. Mm-hmm. It, but it was it felt like a novelty to me even you know, and I, it was my first experience to play in an all woman band, um, uh, and it. It wasn't my first time seeing one because I'd seen the Buffalo Gals and you know and and uh, uh, but they were very different than the Buffalo Gals and and it, it, you know so I don't I don't really know what they were facing in in terms of the business side of it and all of that because I had nothing to do with it at that time but um, like I said you know for me I, I had seen I'd grown up going to Carlton's Carlton Haney's festivals and 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 I knew that women were 
not looked upon equally, for sure. I, I got that message, but it didn't, it still, it wasn't in my bones. I'd never been told that at home. That was not how my father treated me, how my parents treated me, you know, like that was not allowed and that was not accepted. So, and I hadn't really experienced a whole lot of it personally. I didn't feel it, at least. It, I, and so I, I did later, you know, I have later. But at that time, I, I was so naive. I just thought we were all being treated the same. Mm-hmm. But uh, Eddie Adcock gave you some uh, good lessons. He had hired you to do some booking for uh, his band. Yeah, later I started touring with Eddie after after Cloud Valley, and, and um, he asked me if I would mind trying to hand a booking in us as well, and, and I said, sure. So I, I didn't know what I was doing, but I, I just you know figured it out and um, started booking um and that was now that's when I started <laughs> that's when I started getting an education about how people are treated and the whole as as they say the good old boy scene and the network there were some there was some of that but I chose to you know like I kind of bought into it a little bit and just you know felt like I was um trying to make a difference and and um and I I don't know I just I I um, tried not to be. I knew so many of these people, and 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 I oft, I've said many many times, you know, like I felt that the the, the bluegrass world that I grew up in was was my world. It was my big extended family, and so you know you might have the uncle that you know would make you mad or something to say something that you didn't agree with, but you still he's part of the family, so you got to figure out a way to make it work with them. And that's kind of how I felt with a lot of these promoters that I was dealing with. Many and of promoters, they would say um, they didn't want to deal with a woman or pay the woman or... Yeah, so it, well, it, they they usually dealt with me pretty well over the phone. Um, and But then at the, at, the, at the end of the night, when it came time to, to pay money, they would go to Eddie because they want to hand him the cash or the, him the check. And Eddie would say, no, um, you made this deal with, with her. You pay her. And many of them were, like, kind of shocked a little, and they didn't think that that was – they didn't want to give the money to me. They wanted to do business with him because he was the man that they that they had the relationship with. And, and, and at face value, I understand that, the whole relationship thing. But I think for some of them, it's like they just didn't want to give me the money. And, but he refused to take it, so that forced them to come back to me and so we could – you know, sort of consummate the deal. Like it was right. like we had gone through this whole thing, and we shook hands. I made them. I made them shake my hand, and you know, at the end, almost all the time, because that was really important to me to sort of to be like, no, I'm somebody you shake. I'm I'm this right. person that we're having a business transaction with, and I'd grown up sort of seeing people do that, seeing men do that. So I wanted to do that, and um, look them in the eye and shake their hand. And then we were done. It meant we had a deal. It meant we had a deal. And so, and that, it bolstered me hugely for Eddie to support that. I never saw it coming. I didn't think about it. I never got that far in the in the whole equation of the thing. But when he, when he would do that, then they would come to me. And I, 
I swear they looked at me differently from then on. And it went a long way to create these relationships that many of them I still have with these people. Mm -hmm. So after you left Eddie, where did you go? Well, after... At the after I'd played with Eddie for about eight years or so, um, my, my brother um, was starting to to become symptomatic of um, he was HIV positive and we had known this for years before, um, but he was starting to become symptomatic of of um, the the virus the disease and so I knew that we were um, closing in on possibly the end of his life and so I chose to I wanted to make that break and at the time it was the right time to, to leave Eddie and Martha anyway because I've been without them for with, with them for a long time and and um, so I got off the road um, just as my brother was starting to get sick um, and uh, I spent some time just taking care of him what and, year was that until he died well I left them in, um, I think it was uh, 93 or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah. So uh, the nation, in fact, the world didn't know much about AIDS or HIV. And that must have been a very difficult time to be caring for your brother and uh, also dealing with, how did you handle that out in the world? Because uh, it was you and your mother and your husband, Ben, mm -hmm. uh, caring for him. Mm -hmm. um, that must have been very difficult. People were afraid. Oh, yeah, people were terrified. It, it was a disease that no one uh, knew anything about. It was a disease people died from. There was mm -hmm. no, there was no living with AIDS at that time, and um, and people also didn't. Uh, people thought that if you, some people thought if you touched someone, you would get it. Um, so there was lots of fear, um, and yeah. So it was really, it, it was a really hard time because um, not only just dealing with all of those things in just in life, that would be hard. Um, but again, I was uh, dealing with, in, in, within my community of bluegrass, um, you know, um, I had learned already up to that point that I was um, perhaps more liberal than than many of my friends, and and or that or that I should say there were there was lots of liberals, there was lots of conservatives, there were there was all in between, there was everything in, within our community, of course. Um, but I knew I was definitely um, on on that other side, and 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 so I didn't know I didn't know how to say it because it was just such a. a, a a hard time. People were people were dying. People were scared. People were scared, and people were dying so fast and so in such great numbers. It was absolutely devastating. And and all I wanted to do was just scream at the top of my lungs. You know, somebody stop this. And and how how do I get through this? And and this is my you know beloved brother. And. Um, and at the same time, you're hearing all sorts of things back. And so, so yeah, I didn't know how to reach out. It was really a hard time. I didn't know how to talk about it. So I would sometimes, uh, when people would ask uh, anywhere, in any environment, uh, whether it was in my, within my community of bluegrass or in the just the regular world, when people would ask or talk about it or when I would talk about it, I didn't always know how to respond. Uh, do I just say he's sick or he has cancer or allude to something or do I just tell them what's going on? Um, 
there was a lot of blame then too. People thought, oh, well, if he has AIDS, then he must have done something to get that. And you know, like you never say that if somebody has cancer, or if somebody has any other thing, you don't you don't blame the victim. But there was a lot of that, so I didn't want to hear any of that. So I was always af- afraid of what response I was going to get, and it made it it made it hard. And and there were times when I got uh, some less than you know. Uh, loving responses and that made it harder and it pushed me back a little bit more in my shell. So I started doing things like um, uh, more uh, softer things in my mind like I would wear a like a an AIDS t-shirt like a World AIDS Day t-shirt at a, you know at a bluegrass event and what that did was it opened up a door silently so that people would come up to me and they'd start the conversation because they wanted to because they had a friend or they had a brother or they had a sister or or a partner or whatever who had just been through this or going through this or they feared might be going through this so that opened up and then and that so that opened up doors for me and that was a way that I could deal with it so that was very clever it was just it was just a way to get through and um that was just a way to get through. So, you're no stranger to adversity, <laughs> right? Uh, probably how many girls were in the band didn't matter as much as now this problem that you faced with your family. Yeah, yeah. No, this was this was this trumped everything. I mean, it was like um, it was a big deal. And so after my brother died, um, I didn't. Of course, I just I didn't play with anyone for a little while. I just took some time off. During that time, I took a gig, uh, not a gig, but a job um, in a cafeteria at a factory. I was making, you know, I was getting up at 4 a.m. and going in and serving breakfast to workers, and <clears throat> it was like it was it was honest work, and it was what I needed to do at the time. And got through all that, and then and then as I came out of that, um, after uh, that summer, I got a call out of the blue from Ed Snodderly, mm-hmm. who was one half of the Brother Boys, so this fabulous, like, you know, roots-based uh, duo down in East Tennessee. I didn't, didn't know Ed. I knew of his music. A friend had turned me on to their, the Brother Boys um, music uh, record, Plow, that had been produced by Jerry Douglas and released a, a year or two before that. And was a big fan, but I didn't know them at all. And they weren't bluegrass per se, but they were deeply rooted in the tradition of country music and also writers of their own stuff. And anyway, so they he asked me if I wanted to start to play with them, and I I, I said yes. And it was um, it was a great experience, and it was a great time for me to be in an in an environment that I felt was. Um, uh, there was no restrictions. There was no no limits to what we could do. The, there was no oh, it has to be this, it has to be that to to fit into any kind of categories. It was just this open season, and both um, you know, uh, music wise and and I don't know. I just it was a great. It was the perfect gig for me at that time, and later, of course, I mean, Ed Snarl became has become if. If you followed my music at all, I mean, he 
he's one of my favorite writers and um, I've recorded lots of his songs I've now written a song with him which was the title cut to my new record and um, and I, he's been one of my biggest influences when it um, musically um, and mentors as well so uh, had you done much songwriting before this oh, no. no none at all no I mean I no not really I, you know, I didn't think I was a songwriter because other people were songwriters, but I wasn't. And it, it, I, I, you know, literally it was years before I would just sort of go, oh, wait, I guess if you're just going to be a songwriter, you just have to do it. <laughs> yes. You just have to try to do it. And these people didn't, like, fall out of the crib and start writing. Um, so... I don't know. Yeah, it took me a long time. I'm 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 a slow learner. It took me a long time to figure a lot of stuff out. And once you got it figured out, you didn't fall out of the crib and just you <laughs> ran with it. Yeah, I mean, I started I started go, going after, but I had to run because I was, you know, I, time was running out. <laughs> I was so late to the party. But um, but I yeah, I just it it never occurred to me that I could write. Because I thought that was what other people did who were already really good at it. And I didn't realize that in order to get good, you just have to start. You have to practice. You have to practice. You have to do all those things that I had done, you know, playing bass and all mm -hmm. that. But I just, for me, the bass was so natural, so something I did when I was a child. Um, I didn't see the others as the other options, being singer, songwriter, as as being something that I would, I was going to do, but then, uh, of course, you know, the older you get and the more experience you have, and the and the more stuff you go through, the more you need a, a, a vent or a way to deal with all that stuff. So that was it. Was it all just came out of, as they say, you know, just wanting to be able to to deal with what I'd been through up to up to that point. So I started started dabbling at writing then but it was even years after that of meeting ed and listening and being influenced by the way he approached music um that i then started writing and just listening to things in a different way and um uh so and processing and working on that and it has, so it's really my my greatest amount of time writing has only just been in the last mm, five or six years and what a friend it's been to you, right? <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's it's um it's been a a really useful and um uh, good friend, yeah. And you uh, let's not leave out Claire. Your time with Claire Lynch that was a great band. Uh, I loved with you and Jim Hurst. And um, how was that for you? That time. Um, that was amazing as well. I left um, the Brother Boys to... I started subbing for Claire at the Grand Ole Opry, actually. Um, <laughs> yeah, because at the time... Um, I'm laughing because... Uh, <laughs> talk about starting at the top. I know. I know. I couldn't I couldn't believe I was playing the Grand Ole Opry and, and then to be playing with her. And I'd been a fan of hers for so long. And... Um, uh, she, um, Ronnie Simpkins had been playing bass with her, um, but he lived in Virginia and I lived in Nashville. And so, um, those in those days, um, you know, they, they she might just get a one off to play the Opry, 
and so it would be hard for him to come all the way down for mm-hmm. just a um, just an Opry gig. And, but it, uh, uh, so I got the call to, to sub, and and so and that which led to me playing with her full time, and and I oh I loved it. I mean I've learned so much from Claire. She's been also a great friend and mentor to me. Um, oh man, you know she was such a. Uh, a good band leader and that was such a, a positive female role model for me um, over the course of an entire I mean like over the course of 12 years as I played with her like all, not all of that time she was on the road but you know I played in the first uh, it, my first time with her was with her the front porch string band and then she took some time off the road and then she came back as the Claire, Claire Lynch band and that's when I um uh uh, then I um, and you didn't know just like you didn't know you could be a songwriter did you ever think oh someday I'll be the band leader oh and and what's different what much more I talked to Sammy Sheeler and he told me that beyond what he did on stage as a um, band leader he had an additional 30 hours a week Talking to Greg Cahill, he said, 30? I, it's more like 40. Yeah. So what was it for you? Like, it feels like 50 to me. <laughs> You're all up topping each other. Yeah, but yeah. What additional duties do you carry as a band leader? Oh. Um, well, I mean, you know, there's all that stuff. There's the just... For for me, the thing that takes the, the the greatest amount of energy, not necessarily time, but the energy, is figuring out where you're going next. You know what it is that you want to actually want to say and want to do with your music, is having a, having a uh, real pulse on what it is that you do actually want to say, as an artist, and that's the thing that's the the most uh, deviling to me and. Um, uh, that I'm getting better at, but it's it 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 takes up a lot of my time. Although, what time I should be spending on that gets eaten up most days by figuring out where we're going to sleep over the, you know on the next tour. Um, you know, doing road logistics. Um, uh, I don't have to book the gigs. I had, do have an, a fantastic agent, um, which I'm grateful for. But then there's there's the social media presence. Um, there's again focusing on the different aspects of the career making sure you're headed in the right direction and those things um you know i've got i'm on compass records and 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 they're great they're they offer some support there but really ultimately that vision has to come from you and so it's trying to stay on top of that and finding sidemen that agree and can support that vision absolutely and and finding that are good people that you you know don't want to kill when you're out on the road and yeah they uh, say uh it's not how good the music is it's or the arguments are not about the music it's about how well you travel with people mm-hmm. i guess yeah i mean it's it's really true i mean they have to be able to cut the gig um but they but they do they do truly have to be people that you can be on the road with mm-hmm. and um so so and, and and that you know want to be there, and that's that's so it, it it's harder than you think to just find the right people. I've been very lucky. I've toured with so many great folks, and um, and I've learned a little bit better about what to look for because you just do the experience gives you that. And um, such as what are you looking for? 
Well, in terms of musically, I used to, uh, you know, I would give somebody like the fastest, most complicated tune that I had and like see how they play that. And and more these days, I would give them something way less, um, way more sparse and open, see how they approach that. Because it's the ones that are willing to leave the notes out are the ones that I'm more interested in because I think that they have a, a higher level of maturity in their playing. And it's, you know, I mean, like, there's a lot of shredders out there, and there's a lot of people who can play the crap out of everything, you know, just as many notes as... And that's important. That's great. And sometimes they play faster than we can listen. <laughs> and it's like, I love to hear that. I love to play it. I love, love that. I love... There's nothing wrong with it. But those... That doesn't always go hand in hand with with someone who then will get say a slow song. I wrote a song for my dad called "The Ides of March," and and it's it is all about space. It's it's there. It's meant to have big holes in it, and you'd be surprised how many people cannot leave a hole. <laughs> <laughs> and so I want somebody who's willing to to give something the space it needs, and so uh, I'll. You know, choose. I'll choose that that person before I would somebody who can just fill it up with, who's 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 afraid of that space. And one aspect of, the, uh, of people who have traveled with you, and it's a little unusual, not always, but you travel at times with your husband Ben. Yeah. So you have an added layer of relationship. How how does that work? Yeah, you know, it it's um. We didn't always used to get to traveling in like those early years. Uh, many, many, many times he wasn't able to be around when I was just out working for other folks, of course. Um, so, and then when he, we built a studio, he's a recording engineer, and so we built a studio in our house, and oftentimes we're on the same session uh, for um, uh, for somebody else, you know, and um, and we work together in that environment as well, work in the studio uh, all day together or travel on the road. And, he, um, and, you know, we did have to, we had to learn how to do that as as husband and wife and as partners uh, especially in the studio because um you know there's just a certain way that uh, any married couple has of dealing with stuff and then you have to learn how to be able to deal with when you disagree um in a business setting you know and fortunately like we we've worked really hard at all at, at our personal relationship you know we um and we know, like, we respect each other and, and have learned and worked very hard at talking about those things. So then we just had to, there's a, there was a few times when, when we'd have to figure out, like, okay, in this setting, you know, this is how we need to, like, this is what I need from you, this is what I need from you, and, this, and so we have to make sure you hear each other. And, and it's, it's, an, it's an ongoing thing because even to this day, We'll be on the road, and, and it'll be hilarious because, um, well, for example, one of the things was figuring out how we see each other, so how we see things differently. For example, he's a sound engineer. He's, he's also a musician, but he, he's, he's a sound guy. He's, he's audio sound person for, at his core. And I'm a musician at my core. And so the sound is secondary to me, and, and, and so... At, at the end of the night, I'd say, "Well, how did how did it sound?" You know, I'd be wanting this feedback from him, and I 
I really wasn't necessarily wanting just him to say it was great, but I did. I probably do want that a little bit, but I wanted to know what he was, what he thought of the music, and he would start tearing apart how the sound was. <laughs> And I would be like, no, 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 no. I don't care about the sound. <laughs> I don't want to know about how the sound was. I wanted to know how the music, oh, he would, you know, and he would be like, well, and then he would, but we literally spent a long time like at cross points of that because he would, he would go immediately into how it sounded, what problems he faced with the sound. Uh, how it could have been this and I was like I don't I don't want to know that I don't care I just want to know what you thought of the music and so we had to re re respect how we both looked at things mm-hmm well he's a great guy <laughs> he's the best I married up you I don't know I think I won't say that but he's he he is a great guy before we head on uh, remind people how they can learn more about you what is your website so, missyrains.com and uh, is my website and um, and rains is spelled R A I N E S. That's right, M I S S Y. And um, you know, you can find me on um, Facebook, uh, Missy Rains Music, and uh, on Twitter is at the New Hip. And um, I also have been writing more recently on my Tumblr blog, so you can find me on Tumblr Missy Rains, and on Instagram uh, Missy Rains the New Hip. So I'm I'm kind of out there. And the title of your latest release on Compass Records is Royal Traveler. Yes. And I read you got that name from uh, luggage, the title of a piece of luggage. I when I read that, I remember it was an awful little. Like a makeup travel kit, kind of. It is. It's a little suitcase that I bought, and um, the, the you know the story is that I just basically um, been traveling around with that little suitcase. When I bought that suitcase, um, it was used. Obviously, I found it at a little drunk store in Asheville, North Carolina. And when I opened it up, it smelled like my mom. It smelled just like the powder that she wore. I, I can smell it right now. I know. It, I, can, I know exactly what it smells. And, th and that's a powerful thing. Smell mm -hmm. is such a, it's such a um, evocative thing. And I, and so I was like, I have to have this. This is meant to be mine. And, and um, I carried it around and I still do carry it around. And, and I loved every time I, I opened it up, it made me think of, of her and um, how much she loved to go travel to hear music. But uh, a few years ago, I was traveling um, by myself between gigs, between Helen Highwater Stream Band uh, and my own gigs. And then um, I was headed to West Virginia to, to have a, a surprise birthday party for my sister. And I, the whole time, it was during this big blizzard. There was all the snow. There was snow in D.C. There was snow in the Northeast. There was snow in Virginia. And I, I was feeling pretty weary and... Um, and um, I, I, I don't know, I was just tired of traveling and I was a little tired of being out on the road sort of facing the snow coming at me. And I loaded up this, uh, the car early that morning by myself. Um, it was at uh, a friend's house and I, I put that suitcase in the back of my van and I just looked down at the, at the handle and just for the first time I felt like I read it. I read those words, Royal Traveler, and I thought, 
oh my god I'm a royal traveler like I am a royal traveler this is this is how I'm gonna like I've lost sight of that so this is what's brought me back was thinking of it in a different perspective it's like I have been traveling my whole life and almost at every turn it's been about music and but it's also been about family and about my um, the relationship between my family and music and all these things just started flowing in my head and so then suddenly I was like ready to go into the snowstorm and I did I drove and I started writing like with my hand <laughs> in the seat and driving in the snow and um, and I'm and it I didn't finish the song that day by any means but I started it that day and it it then the next day I and made it to West Virginia in eight eight inches of snow and and had the party for my sister and um, and then uh, ended up going to my childhood church where there's uh, uh, and went to mass the next morning which I never usually did and went but the the room that um, I love mass in that in my church because it's not so much the mass I have to say, but it's the being in that room. It's, it's sacred to me, you know. That's where my dad took me, and and so um, and then I went home and and just started thinking about uh, um, all the things that, that came into my head uh, about this uh, those words. And then I got with Ed Snodderly and, and told him the story, and he was really intrigued, and so together we came up with the song. And it just feels like it's sort of a, 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 a point of, like an anthem almost at this point for me. You know, like, you know, it, it's very it's very personal um, song, and uh, it brought together a lot of things. And this whole album has ended up being a pretty personal uh, side of me is probably the per- most personal album I've ever done, and as I wrote, I wrote or co-wrote several of the tunes, and there's a an in, a writing theme through it about um, endurance, and um, and the the chain of uh, faith that sort of ties all things together, faith or the testing of faith, and and and. And family and loss and how you how you just deal with the loss and at that point um, I'd had a, quite a bit of loss I've had even more since and so it's it's like it was just a way to do, to cope with all of that. Well, uh, one other thing I want to mention is the first ladies of bluegrass, and this is a group of women, each who were the first woman to win an IBM award in their category. You have, is it seven base awards over the years? Yes. And um, there's Allison Brown on banjo, uh, Becky Buller on fiddle, um, Molly Tuttle on guitar. Uh, who else am I missing? Uh, Sierra Hall. Sierra, uh, Sierra Hall on mandolin. So, uh, which is... Just to see you all together is something I never thought I would see. Uh, for women, uh, it had become okay to see or expected to see women as a side musician. But to see women, all who were first in their category together, it, as a woman my age, it's astounding. I didn't think I'd ever live to see something like that. It makes me very proud of all of you. Well, thank you. It, 
I didn't think I would either. <laughs> I didn't think we would all get there. And I, and I, I love that. I don't love that it took so long to get to these like, I, um, you know, Molly and and Sierra are so much younger than than um, me, but. I, and I don't love that it took that long, but I love that this band is multi-generational because I think that's important as well. Um, but yeah, it's I didn't think I didn't think we'd see it. I didn't think I didn't know if I was going to see it. I, to be honest, when Allison, she was the first one. She won, and she's the head of the record label, right? And and when she won in 1992, um, which was the year, as we point out, Sierra was born. Wow. Um, wow. <laughs> But when when she won, uh, none of I mean I didn't think that I did, I started getting nominated after that. But I I never believed I was going to win. I really truly didn't. It's cliche to say that, but it's true. I didn't think that I was going to win. I just thought, oh, this is really amazing. I'm being nominated. But um, it took it was years before I actually won. Mm-hmm. And and so it was years after. It was six years, in fact, after her that I won. Then it was another several years um, before um, I think Sierra won. And so, uh, you know, it, it's been a long time coming. But it's, you know, I think uh, I, I think that it's not not to say that we don't have a long way to go, but um, but it's we're, we're on our way. Well, keep it going. Thanks. That was Katie with Missy Rains. To get the latest on Missy, check out her website at www.missyrains.com. Bluegrass Stories is available on a host of platforms, including SoundCloud, iTunes Music, Google Podcasts, on the web at www.katydaily.com and bluegrassstories.com. Thanks for listening to Bluegrass Stories.